0: we are in a sermon series we're continuing in the book of Romans. We're working through Romans chapters 1 through 4, and we've entitled the sermon series Pleading the Fifth because of the legal courtroom uh, nature of, of Paul's argument. And we're approaching a turn in, in the argument. So next, next Sunday will be The Pivot. But uh, this Sunday, he's kind of concluding an idea, and we're going to be in Romans 3 to see that, Romans 3, verses 1 through 8, which, if you're using one of our Bibles, is page 782. And this is the question or the thought I want to put out in front uh, for you to think about, because it's going to be true, or at least Paul is assuming it's going to be true of the people to whom he's writing, but I think it's true of all of us, and it's this idea that when we perceive that um, our viewpoint is crumbling in front of us. We, we take a position, uh, we want something, we believe something, we have a worldview, and oftentimes when that worldview is being challenged or when it's toppling, um, our personal pride and desires it seems to be the last thing that steps out to hold it up and it does that some ways through absurd arguments. Like our personal pride is usually the worst litigator on our behalf. When it's the final, when it's the final thing in our life, making an argument, everybody else can see that we're being absurd. I'll give you, I'll give you an example, uh, a regular example that I think you'll recognize. Imagine you have a son and daughter, kids young daughter, and she is playing with a toy. Now, the toy admittedly belongs to the boy. It's just this scenario where it's Happy Meal toy that the the son got. But he was out playing, and so now she's playing with this toy. And this toy, surprisingly enough, especially for Happy Meal toy, is bringing her joy. <laughs> it's actually, uh, you know, it's doing something in her life. And, and little Tommy walks in and sees her his sister... Receiving joy from this toy that is his, and the fact that there's this mysterious joy that's coming out of this toy that he's never been able to find intrigues him, and so he does what? He takes it, of course. Takes his toy, and so the parent and the mom says, Tommy, you need to give the toy back to Sally. And then what ensues is an argument, a very stable argument of reasons why Tommy should not have to give his toy back to his sister. That's just how to have. So the first argument he'll make, and, and these arguments, they don't survive, but they're reasonable arguments. The first argument is, but it is my toy. It's my toy. To which the mom says, I, I know that, Tommy, but you weren't playing with it. So he tries it again, but it's It's my toy. Right? This toy belongs to me. And the mom says, yeah, but it's been sitting on the floor for a week and a half, and you haven't touched it. Well, she has other toys. Well, you can go play with those toys, Tommy. And he begins to give one reason after another, and, and you know the mom kind of refutes these reasons very calmly, because she's a great mom. And, and, you know, it ends up being things like, you know, and you could get to the place with this child where you could offer Tommy the greatest toy in the world. You could take the greatest toy in the world, dip it in gold, give it artificial intelligence, and he would still not want that toy because of the Playmobil that's bringing mysterious joy to his sister. And as the argument goes, his defenses get more and more absurd, So the mom will say, well, Tommy, why don't you just go play outside? It's stupid outside. It's hot. There's nothing to do outside. Why don't you go draw? I already drew everything there ever is to draw. I'm not going to draw. We've been there. We've been this person, and we've observed this person, many of us. And then finally, when it's all said and done, and it's clear that Tommy's not going to win, he pulls out the big guns, the absurd arguments that come purely from a place of pride. He'll say something like this. You never take my side. Or, she always gets her way. Or, you always take her side. And they quiver the bottom lip that adds to the absurdity. <laughs> <laughs> they do that. You always take their side. <laughs> And that's how, and, and, and at some level, if you were just, re, if you were an anthropologist that undug this conversation written down on paper a thousand years from now, you would say, whoa, that is a deep argument. There are serious issues in that home. But as a parent, you discipline that, you know, not only am I, of course, I, you discipline that because it's coming from an absurd place. Well, that's what's happening this morning in the text is Paul has laid out a very thoughtful argument about mankind. He started by saying, this, and this is, remember, he's our defense attorney arguing on our behalf in the highway to receive God's mercy is through confession and our awareness of our unrighteousness. And so what Paul does is he says, starts his argument and says, by the way, the whole world is unrighteous. The world is by its nature, its sinful nature, wicked. And given its opportunity, it is on a trend towards greater and greater wickedness. It will exchange truth for a lie. It will exchange truth for a lie, and the Lord will further turn them over to themselves and their own wicked deeds. To which there's almost always people in the crowd who say, Amen. And then he says, Okay, and everybody who said, Amen, all the self-righteous, you are also wicked. Because you have a notion of what's right, and you still can't manage to do it. And then the religious people go, well, amen to that. And he says, and to the religious people, to the Jews and the people of Jewish background in this text, but certainly to the religious, he says, you most of all are equally unrighteous because you had the fullness of God's law and you still do similar things. It's, It's almost as though our unrighteousness is on an equal plane with all of humanity because those who don't have the law do really wicked things, hideously wicked things. But the more law you have, You know, you may not do something as hideous as they do, but you have more truth. And either way, the Lord's not trying to create a comparison. We're on the mindset of going, I'm more righteous than that person. The Lord is trying to establish the criteria of you are not righteous. It's binary. Either you are or you are not. In Revelation, there's this moment where God looks around to see if there's one worthy man. You remember this? And John, John gets to see it. Is there any worthy person who can open this scroll? And the place goes quiet. And John, he says, I wept and I wept because there was not a worthy man. And then someone says, there's the lamb who's worthy. Paul is building this argument to say, there is no one who's righteous. And as he works through these last couple of weeks where Pastor Jeff worked with you, he's, he, he ends up dealing with the reality of the religious and particularly a Jewish community or a community with Jewish heritage, one that has a link to the past and to the promises and to the hopes and to all of these things, to circumcision and to the rituals and the holy days and all of these things. And he essentially says to them, All of those things are worthless at the throne of God. They mean nothing at judgment. It would be like saying to you if you were came into the church as a child and you were baptized and you've done communion every time that communion has been offered and you've come to every church every Sunday and you've made sure to come on holy days and you tithe and you have a record of tithing and you have six gold stickers for attendance and you're a, on a Sunday school roll and you're a member of this committee, that the Lord would say a judgment that is worthless at the judgment. You need to hear it. He's not kind of saying that. That's what he's saying. If we are ever going to be able to receive the grace of God through pure faith, we must say that these works mean nothing before the throne of judgment. To which the religious start to think, you mean I cannot show him my tithe book? You mean I cannot show him my attendance record? You mean that stuff gets no, it is not evidentiary at the judgment. It does not come before the Lord. And the religious, the, Jew, the, the Jewish background here, but the religious in their mindset begin to go, they throw their arms up. Well, then what is the point? Why even do it? That's, that's where we are in this account. We're in this account where Paul has built the argument. He's argued and argued and argued, you are not righteous, you are not righteous, you are not righteous, you are not righteous, and this is the moment where the unrighteous person trying to hold desperately on to their desire to get into heaven and to stand before the Lord on their own merit, begin to ask absurd questions, and this is what we'll be reading. We're going to be reading three absurd questions that are coming, Paul's, Paul is anticipating the questions, right? He's writing a letter, but he's certainly heard these questions probably in every synagogue that he goes to around the Greco-Roman world. He's anticipating these absurd questions, and he's entertaining them briefly for what they're worth. And so as we read them, this is what I want to ask. Uh, we're going to spend a little time in the questions, but I want to ask you to w- do the work in your own spirit to say, how am I living in some kind of absurdity? In other words, what, ele- what part of the faith that you don't want to accept, have you, just, have you created a ridiculous excuse not to own? Is there somewhere where you're like, well, I believe in that and I want that, but in your a la carte perspective, you've said I don't want that, and the reason I don't need to have that is because of this. I just want I want to encourage you to allow your soul to ask those questions as we read. Okay, here is the first question. Chapter three, verses one and two. Paul anticipates this one. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? To which he answers, well, much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. That's the first question. Basically, what he's kind of mentioned, the question he's putting here is, if it doesn't save me, then why would I do it? That's the question that's being asked here. If it doesn't save me, then why would I do it? If circumcision doesn't save me, then why would I do it? If the holy days don't save me, then why would I observe them? If going to church doesn't save me, then why go to church? Now, one level can sound deep. The reality is it's, it's a question that's coming from the wrong place. It's a question that is actually, what it actually the birthplace of this question is someone who has a singular focus on their condition before the Lord and no awareness of their relationship with the Lord. In other words, their notion of religion is, am I saved or am I not saved? Am I going to go to heaven? That is not Christian. To To have a faith that's merely centered around your condition before the throne. In that sense, everything in the faith is merely a way for you to get where you want to go. Which is the wrong way to look at the faith. But that's what's happening here is people have grown up in this religious environment where they thought what they were doing was getting them to heaven. And then Paul says, no. In fact, you're not, In fact, the law that you think you're doing is actually exposing your own unrighteousness to which they go, well, why am I even doing it then? If it's not getting me to heaven, what's the point? Because they're not approaching the things of God in order to be in relationship to God. They're approaching the things of God in order to change their disposition and their condition so that they're going to go to heaven. That's what's happening here. To which Paul says, don't you realize you have the very words of God? Like if you're just a person who's interested in getting to heaven, and you'd say, well, are you saying that if I read this thing, it doesn't mean I go to heaven? Then why would I read this thing? To which Paul is kind of saying, do you realize what you just said? God chose to speak to you. God could have remained silent, and watched this earth spiral away. But He chose to open His mouth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Was God, and the Word became flesh and made His dwelling place among us. Paul is saying if you cannot see the advantage of being inside a religious community that has the very words of God, it's absurd. What advantage is there into being a Jew, he would say, is you've had all the oracles of the prophets, and every time God has spoken, it's come directly to your people. It's come to you so that you might know. You, hot off the press, got to know the will and person of God. God displays himself through the word, and you got to see it. And yet, have not entered into a relationship. It's absurd. This is the absurdity of people who take religion and use it as a transaction with the divine in order to get to heaven. What do I need to do to get the ticket to get to heaven? And when we say, well, there's nothing you can do to get it because there is no ticket, they go, well, then what's the point? To which Paul would say, well, the point is you get the opportunity to know the living God. That is a great advantage. That's the first question. Here's the second one. The second question comes, what if some did not have faith? Were their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? To which he answers, not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. The question here, if I reword it again, is is the same kind of religious mind would say, well, if the word of God has been entrusted to me, and if we're the chosen, and if we're the elect people, and if we've been set apart, if we're God's holy people, and we've been given this promise, and God's promise to save these people, well, if you're saying now that we are not righteous, well, then is it going to nullify God's promise to save us? In other words, does the faithlessness of God's professing people threaten the truthfulness of a God who made a promise. To which Paul responds kind of like this. He says, that's absurd. If faithlessness, does faithlessness invalidate God? Our faithlessness invalidate his word? Paul would say something like this. You are not automatically God's people. So that's step one. You're not automatically God's people. So the question's coming from a place that's assuming that the person is God's people. Well, what if my faithlessness, what if I'm faithless? Does that nullify God's word? Paul would say, well, if you're faithless, you're not one of his people. That might be the first thing he would say. But the second thing is, is we like to think that God's promises, we like to think of God's word and his promises are something that are for us, whereas the reality of the Old Testament when you read it, or the scriptures in general is this, God doesn't just make promises for us, he enters into a covenant with us. So this question comes from somebody who has a terrible memory, because God didn't say to the Hebrew people, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to save you. I promise I'm going to save you. That's not what God said. God said, listen, I place before you life and death, blessing and curses. Choose this day. Over here, if you choose to follow after me, there's life and hope and fullness. Over here, if you choose to follow after other things, yourselves and other idols and other gods, there's death and cursing and judgment. There's a whole span of of what can happen. God's, God's word is not dependent upon us getting to heaven. Nobody on the entire earth needs to go to heaven to validate God. God's not in a popularity contest. God, it's not as though he needs to get just enough people into heaven to validate his own glory. God is in his glory right now. Whether or not we join him, this is what Paul is meaning. When he says, let, let God be true and every man a liar. It doesn't matter. It doesn't uh, Your faithlessness, my faithlessness, the world's faithlessness makes, makes no impact on the personhood of God. He makes a quote. He quotes a psalm here. Oddly enough, the psalm is Psalm 51. Of all the psalms to quote... So the people are asking a question. The question he's anticipating is, if we're faithless, does that nullify God's promise to save us? And he answers with a psalm where David says, because I'm faithless and I know you're just, you're right in dealing with me harshly. This is is what he says in, in Psalm 51. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. This is the disposition that, that God longs for us. This is the one that the reader, the people are, You can, Paul is assuming that they don't want to have, which is I don't want to admit that I am unrighteous. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach wisdom in the inmost places. God is just and loving and that does not nullify his word. We flip things around sometimes. We like to say that God is is infinitely loving and partially just. The reality is, is God is always completely just and he is appropriately loving. He loves those things that he chooses to love. That's the second question. Here's the third one. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing His wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. I have that in parentheses in my book. That's roughly equivalent to "This is absurd." Okay, the message says, "This is absurd." certainly not. If it were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is deserved. Now, this one, he hardly even entertains the question. He asks the question, and along the way that he's kind of asking the question, he's saying, some of you would ask this absurd question, and it's absurd. It's ridiculous, and so I'm hardly going to answer this absurd question. It's kind of uh, what what the text is saying. But the, the question itself is, if God is using our unrighteousness to display his righteousness, doesn't he need to throw us some kind of bone? That's what they're saying. They're saying, if God is shining a light of his righteousness and it's bouncing off my unrighteousness so that other people can see, well, don't I get some kind of credit for bouncing the light of God off my unrighteousness? To which Paul says, really? Really? This is a human argument. That's like tantamount to this This is a childish argument. This is what happens when in someone's mindset they don't want to let go of their own concept of righteousness. The the worldview is falling right now, and they're going from one absurd argument to another absurd argument. I mean, I guess there's in some mystical place we could sit down and talk about how deep this argument is, but I think it would go contrary to what Paul's trying to do here, which is just to say, I refuse to entertain this kind of argument because it's coming from a sinful place. That is as if we are claiming some credit for the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus because we drove the nails. That's what it's doing. It's saying, man, patting each other on the back because it was a long day of whipping that guy and hauling him up the mountain. We got to get some credit. He wouldn't, you know, he would not have been crucified had I not been a sinner. That is the mentality in this question. That's how absurd it is. Now, those are the questions that are before Paul. Those are the ones he's dealing with. Those are likely ones that he's being visited upon as he goes into synagogues and as the people in the synagogue who have built their life around merit and religious observance challenge him to say, what is the point of religious observance if it doesn't gain me righteousness? And these are the natural outworkings. But I would say this. These may not be your absurdities. You may even look at the goes who believes this? Who, who even thinks this way? These may even feel like false arguments to you, false questions that Paul's drawing, which I would say slow down not so fast because every one of these questions is being asked today. There's a large part of the human populace, by the way, that thinks that good and evil are in a harmonious relationship. The dualism, the yin and the yang, the reality of good is not really good without its partnership and independence on evil. This is the third question. Does good, Does the good God need to need evil in order to be good? To which Paul says, no. Evil is the absence of God. So these absurdities, maybe they're not the ones you're asking, but they're on the earth today. But what I would ask to you, is in light of the truth of God, you know, let, me start with, let me start with a person who would say you're not a follower of Christ, but you've been watching, or you've been sitting here listening to what Paul has to say in Romans, or maybe you've been here for six months or eight months, or maybe you're listening for the first time or watching, but you've, you've been following, carefully following that religious, faithful person in your family who's just a little bit different. And you know something's different about them, but you don't want to accept it. You don't want to admit you're wrong, and you don't want to let go. And so I want to ask you, what kind of absurdity are you living in? What's wrong with the argument and case that Paul has made? Do you actually think that you're righteous? You want to hear an absurdity? I'll tell you an absurdity. This is an absurdity, the notion that God loves all people, but that he just chooses to make himself individually known in distinct, differing, and contradictory ways in each person's heart. I call that, that is absurd. That's an absurd notion in my mind. And yet, I meet that on the street every single day. Everybody has their own personal Jesus. And I think if Jesus is so loving and if he cares so much about us, why in the world would he give everybody a different sheet of music to sing on? Seems to me that I would expect that kind of grand God who made the heavens and the earth to give us some objective revelation of himself, maybe even write it down, so that we might know the one true God. What about the notion that everybody has their own ability to salvage an individual sense of truth and good and evil. Like our morality is an individual idea. I choose to call that absurd. I, I, any, if that is your position, I challenge it to up, stand up against the rigor of Paul. That is, my world is falling and I'm holding on to this because it allows me to do what I want to do but it is not logically consistent or useful in this life. Those same people get bent out of shape when someone cheats them out of two cents at the cashier. If truth is immaterial, then how can you do that? I once wanted to be a professor of philosophy. I wanted to take a survey in the class on is truth objective or is it just a personal idea. I wanted to do this in an Ivy League school. Do I have time to do this? I, I have a little bit of time. I wanted to do this in an Ivy League school, so Maybe I'll do it one day or be a professor and say this and say, you know, is truth objective or is it your own individual? And all the students who said it's just an individual truth, I would fail them. <laughs> and watch what would happen. And if they came to me and said, how do you fail me? I'd say, because I choose not to like, I choose to call all people who believe in arbitrary truth evil. And that's my truth for me. And so you get an F minus And I'm going to give you an F double minus if you say anything else. I just, I want to, now I know I can't because I'm a Christian. And so this is halfway a confession to you. But part of me wants to do that to challenge the absurdity of the principle. Which is I want truth to be exactly how I want it as long as I get an A. I'm just saying in light of the truth of God where he says you know God has made himself plain to you, and you know truth. You know it, and yet you cannot follow it. And even if you want to call yourself moral, and take a high ground. You know that the closer you draw to truth, the, m- the greater you see truth and clarity. The more you realize that you're not even observing it. And if you were to stand beside God Himself and see His face, that what you your first sensation would not be that you're righteous, but rather in in His bright light, how unbelievably unrighteous you are. That the closer you draw to the truth of God and the law, the more your unrighteousness stands out. So that the problem is, is that nobody is righteous. That is the truth. And everything else that fights against it is absurd. Let God be true and every man a liar. But what I want to do as we close is I want us to ask about this same question inside the faith. Because it's always easy to pick on people, to pick on the non-believing soul that's scratching and trying. And you know, we should have a heart of love and mercy for the non-believing soul. Because we were once there, and I have no idea how I was there, and now I'm here. All of the things of the Spirit that were at work to get me here. What I want to ask is, how do we in the church do this very same thing? How you live in this religious world, and yet live in absurdity, because you don't want to do something that is purely and absolutely Christian. I'll give you one. I, we have the ability to realize how much we have been forgiven. That Jesus Christ shed his blood on that cross so that you and I might be forgiven of all of our sin and yet we choose in our own way to be unforgiving to those in our household. That is an absurdity. That is a theological absurdity that rejects the cross. I want to receive the forgiveness of Christ and yet not share his forgiveness to others? How do you work that out? Well, what about this one? A knowledge of all the unrighteousness that God has saved us from. All the things that we used to do that God has covered and the fact that he's given us his spirit and freed us so that we can now do righteous things, that we now have some ability to reach the Lord. I'm not saying that it turns out overnight, but I'm saying that at least in Christ now I have a Holy Spirit convicting and defending me and rushing to my aid from and trying to at least say you can do it. And yet at the same time we make light of our current unrighteousness. How does that happen? How can we at one sense glorify the Lord who saved us? from all of our unrighteousness and still make light of the very unrighteousness that exists in our Christian life. How? That is a Christian absurdity. You cannot make much of Jesus if you do not make much of sin. You cannot say, he saved me from so much if you continue to say, but I love doing this so much. That is absurd. It's an absurdity I understand. But it is absurd. How can we claim victory in Christ and live in daily fear? Those of you who live in daily fear and anxiousness, I think the Lord would say that is an absurdity. Pure love casts out fear. What if you believe that Jesus is your savior and yet you feel worthless? This is a pitiable absurdity. You are rejecting the great value that has been been bestowed upon you at the cross, that you have been adopted as a son or daughter of God, made a co-heir with Jesus Christ, that you were fearfully and wonderfully made and purchased at a great price. You have, through your absurdity, rejected all of that. I just want to show you that we all have a a place we don't want to let go of. We have something that means something to us and when the word pushes it over, we make absurd and ridiculous excuses and we, we live in a contradictory life. I'm grateful that Christ is patient with us and that he who saves us continues to show mercy as he works on us to be like him. But I ask you, where in your life is there this absurdity? What I'm going to do is we're going to bow in prayer here. And I'm going to finish Psalm 51 as we just lean towards the Lord. It seems right at this place in Romans to turn from the teaching of Paul to forgiveness, to confession, to walk away at the end of this argument and at the end of these challenging, absurd questions to say, it, to at least have the ability to say to the Lord, I am undone. I am not righteous. And so allow me, as we pray, just to read Psalm 51 over us and find the hope that God has for us In his word, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me of my sin. And Lord, now I pray for those in this room who are held captive by addiction. I pray, Lord, for those who have an unforgiving or bitter spirit. Father, I lift up those in this room who are held captive to anxious fear. Lord, I lift up those people here who refuse to let go of their anger. Father, to the selfish and the proud. I pray that according to your great compassion, you would blot out our transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time of my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost places. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.